The Pace Line is produced by The Cycling Independent, the only cycling media completely free of commercial influence. We are community-supported and dedicated to the whole of cycling. As our tagline says, if you ride bikes, you're one of us. From the Cycling Independent, this is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Patrick Brady, and with me is my co-host, Patria Vandermark. Each week, we take a look at how cycling fits in our lives. Well, Patria, how is fall shaping up there? Are you getting like peak foliage in the Boston area? We are very close to peak here, Patrick. It's looking Ooh. very beautiful. I was out in what, central Massachusetts and Western Mass over the weekend where it is peak. So Boston is very, very close. It's gorgeous. We're having a great year. Where, where in Western Mass? How about Mass? it out there? Where in Western Mass were you? Um, we were doing some scouting around the Northampton area, <gasps> but also from Phillipston over to Northampton, which is where we're running a social distance ride on October 24th. Oh, so that's our, that's our excuse for getting out there. Oh, uh, you... You may recall this. I spent seven years in Northampton. That's where I was living before I moved to California. I I missed that place like a limb. Yeah. It, so you enjoyed the time you had out there. Oh, I, I adore that place. It's it's such a special location. I mean, aside from being beautiful, you know, it's just a, it's a place full of a lot of really interesting, vibrant people uh, with five colleges right there. You've got a lot of people who. uh are challenging their intellects and you know then you've got a whole lot of really active people and the riding all around there the mountain biking the road riding the gravel riding it's all just spectacular and then once the snow flies you've got all that nordic uh skiing um i don't think there are many alpine areas left around there not that the uh, maybe not we saw a lot of cyclists out there <laughs> yeah that's right yeah. Yeah. What kind of cycling did you do when you were out there? Uh, I did everything I could possibly get into. I was gravel riding, but I was doing it on 25 millimeter tubulars. Um, <laughs> you were one of the first. I, it's funny. I Yeah, I rode with people who would deliberately go out and look for more dirt roads for us to ride. But it's just so funny because I think about some of those roads now and with the, you know, even if I just had 32s back then. I could have gone over some of that stuff so much faster. And with like the forties on, uh, on one of my bikes, oh my gosh, I would have been ripping through that stuff. I, yeah, I would really love to go back and ride some of the roads that I used to do regularly. They're a little further South of what D2 R2 typically takes mm -hmm. in. Uh, but I certainly, when I did do D2 R2 some years back, I did take in some roads that I'd been on previously, uh, but there's a whole lot of stuff west of Northampton uh, heading up into the hills there. Um, yeah. Waitley getting up toward Deerfield and then up toward Goshen and Cummington. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. special stuff. But that's further west yes. of what you're talking about. And I don't really know those roads. 
We've found quite a few amazing dirt roads and gravel and, and interesting trails as well in the central mass mm. area. And then we're extending out to Northampton and seeing a lot above and below, too, because as you might imagine, scouting involves a lot of extra roads that we aren't going to have a chance to do for this ride, but they will be featured on future rides. So oh. lots and lots of opportunities for gravel cyclists. Mm. Envy, envy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're gonna have to come back. I think oh, you're gonna have to come back and do some riding. Yeah, I twist my arm when you Please. can get on the airplane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I almost got on a, a plane this past week so that I could go do uh, <laughs> Celine's husband's ride, Dave Pryor, uh, unpaved PA. So I saw some posts from Celine about that, and uh, yeah, someday I'm gonna start getting on a plane again. That would be a great thing. It's now I'm putting two and two together. I met Dave when I went down to Pennsylvania this time last year when he was talking about his ride. I happened to be on a group ride with him. So now I know who you're talking about. Oh, the worlds collide. Neat. It's beautiful. Neat. It's gorgeous down there. Seeing the photos of that ride. Absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Celine's posts uh, this weekend were. Oh, yeah. Envy. <laughs> yeah. It was a lovely weekend. Yeah. Amazing. Ride. Well, so since it's fall, yeah. uh, jumping into my pull, uh, I want to talk about fall riding and that transition that so many of us typically go through uh, in the form of working on skills. So I'm pleased to say uh, here in Sonoma County, the air is finally pretty passable. As of yesterday morning, the glass complex fire was 87% contained, which is terrific news. Um, so that means that the fire has met the vast majority of the fire breaks and backfires uh, that were lit. Um, so our, wow. there was a little bit of smell of campfire in the air this morning. But despite that, the mm -hmm. air itself felt much more clear. We did get some oh, rain on wonderful. Saturday. So... <sighs> Yeah, that helps a lot. Right. Having oh the rain. Gosh. Yeah. Because, I mean, that pulls so much of what's in the air out of it. Um, so mm -hmm. when we're not on fire most of the year, uh, <laughs> this is a really special time of year here, even though I haven't had the long season of events that I normally have in a year. Um, those, mm -hmm. shall we say, more traditional smells of fall. The turning leaves, uh, the faint perfume of the wine must fermenting when you go by wineries. Good Lord, it's better than the smells of Christmas to me. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> uh, but it's also an implicit signal that the days will be getting shorter and cooler. So there's something in my head that naturally begins to think about slowing down some. Uh, as I don't yet know what next season will bring on the social front in terms of doing events. I really have no right. idea if I'll be riding grasshoppers or not, or any of the bike monkey events. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that cross is coming when it comes right down to it. Ugh. When you say grasshoppers, what are you referring to? I'm not sure I know. Oh, the grasshopper adventure series. Yeah. You and I haven't had a chance to talk much about them. So the grasshoppers are arguably the oldest series of mixed surface events in the entire country. They started in the late 90s. And, uh, you know, unlike a lot of events like Dirty Kanza, where it's like 99.6% gravel, uh, 
sometimes not quite that much, but, you know, near almost entirely dirt. These will sometimes be, you know, 80, 85 percent road with some dirt thrown in. Sometimes it's 50 50. It really depends on which event it is. But traditionally, there will be a sequence of events over the course of the season, beginning with the shortest at 50 miles and working its way up uh, to the longest of the bunch uh, at 96 miles. And wow. Yeah. So they they vary in terms of how much dirt there is and just how silly they get in terms of uh, the technical challenge. Uh, And I just I absolutely adore these events. They can be stupidly hard. And so the community that they attract uh, is similarly crazy. Uh, (laughs) Really just a lot of lovely people. I've got uh, a lot of my favorite people in this community are people I see at the grasshoppers when they're happening. Um, Yeah. Thanks for explaining that. Okay. (laughs) Um, But I've been thinking about, well, I'm not doing that. I don't know if that's coming up. You know, how do I spend this fall? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I went back to something that I do traditionally often do this time of year, which is to spend some time focusing on skills. In my mountain biking, I've been working on three different things, jumps, weight shifts and weight positioning. Uh, And those last two are different. And I'll get into that. You know, with the jumps, the deal is relatively simple. I find something that I haven't been willing to ride off previously, and I go and take some time to inspect it and session it. Uh, I might even ride by it slowly a couple times while taking short glances at it. Uh, Then I'll ride up to the edge and stop and look off that drop. I'll back up and then the next time I'll go off it slowly that I can feel just how big the drop is in my body. Um, I don't know that this is a step that, you know, a lot of those skills clinics really recommend. Uh, It seems like a lot of the advice I see is, you know, you just haul ass off of it. You know, you learn how to position your weight and you just go for it. And uh, for me, that that fear gene uh, sitting somewhere back in my head doesn't really permit that. And so I really... I have to break things down into a lot of discrete little steps that I can take in. Um, So uh, after that, I can begin taking the drop with a little bit, uh, a little bit more speed, you know, kind of rolling off of it instead of just dropping it off at that first time. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I'll from there, I'll just keep taking it a little bit faster and a little bit faster until The goal being I can hit it without touching my brake levers. I'm not sprinting into it, but I'll roll into it and not touch my brake levers and go off of it. Once I've managed to do that, I go back and then I do that one more time to really embed the sense memory before moving on to something else. I'll venture to assert that I've made more gains that way in the last two weeks than I have in the last year. Yeah, that seems like a really good approach to it, taking it step by step. Well, yeah, I I think I mean, certainly I've I've read that in other people's uh, work concerning building those skills. I think that my approach might be a little non-standard, but I'm also not really concerned 
because the thing is, you know, without some coach on my shoulder saying, okay, do this, put your hands there, hold your mouth this way. I've just had to go at it and say, well, I know I can figure this out. I know that I've gone off a thing this high. This is half that high. I really shouldn't be afraid. Um, And yet the fact remains. Uh, So (laughs) I've been finding, you know, my own way to break that down so that I can take it in. And, you know, 10 minutes later, I mean, that's the funny thing is this really doesn't take all that much time if you slow down and give yourself a chance to work through it. Uh, yeah. In less than 10 minutes, I can go from, nope, not going off that to flying off at a full speed. Um, excellent. Dang, that's good. I like that. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Um, the next thing I've been working on has been repurposing a lesson from my Alpine skiing days. I recall my Alpine teacher's working to get me to stand up straight after finishing a turn so that I could smoothly transition my weight from one ski to the other. Uh, To do that, I had to get my weight up and off my skis. I've taken the same approach to working on dealing with twisty single track. And believe me, out in West County, the single track is super, super twisty, as is some of the stuff on the social trails, uh, i.e. illegal uh, trails in Annadel. Um, mm-hmm. so the moment I've completed a turn, I try to get my weight up so that when I initiate the next turn, I can turn in hard and weight the suspension so that I get good traction less for me. The issue is less the traction than getting my weight up so that I can really turn in hard and really get the bike leaned over. Um, that's, mm-hmm. That's really the big thing because I'm on a bike. That's a little longer than some, uh, I have to get it leaned over a little bit more than you would with some bikes to get it to carve a really tight radius. And so I, I really have to work on that and yes, getting the suspension compressed so that it will offer good traction is necessary. It becomes more necessary. The more you lean the bike over, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so the weird one in this is that it can seem easy to do at moderate speed, but as you slow down, it becomes even harder to do by going slow. Your technique has to be really clean, which is key to being able to go fast. Ultimately, that's something I'm reminded of from my music days was that there were things that you could kind of kind of cheat your way through at moderate speed and then you'd speed them up. And because you kind of cheated your way through at a, at a lower tempo, you know, just by going fast, it didn't show how sloppy you were. So you'd have to slow something way, way, way down to make sure you were really playing it clean before you could actually learn how to play it fast. And this is very much the same sort of thing. Um, and yeah, I, I find that, that makes sense. Yep. Yeah. I, I find that my cornering is also more precise the more I do that. Um, so that's been an mm-hmm. interesting little thing to notice lately that there are some very tight technical spots that I used to have to slow down more pre for previously. And as I've cleaned up my technique, 
I'm, I'm finding I can get through, get my tire through a space that's six inches wide without rubbing something on either side of it in a way that I didn't used to. Um, yeah, there was one wow, that's tricky. yesterday. Yeah, I was, there was one descent yesterday. I was just flying down and had never been down at that quickly before. And it's like, I'm vaguely God adjacent right now. Um, patted myself on the back. <laughs> Good work. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, you know, there's nothing better than when you feel cool to yourself, right? It's true. You know, right. I don't, I don't you know need when an you... audience. Yeah. No. Yeah. And it's fine if nobody right. else believes me. I don't care. It's just, it's my own satisfaction. So the last yeah. thing I've been working on is working to make sure I lean the bike more than I lean myself. Ideally, when you're cornering, you want your weight to be as close to directly over the tire's contact patches as possible. And the more a rider's weight is over the tires, the better the traction will be. This is also, incidentally, super handy for gravel riders. And the thing that I've definitely been working on during my gravel rides, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's that, that ability to get the bike leaned over and figure out how to position myself so that I'm not really on the saddle in the classic sense, uh, but it's more on my, uh, under my inside, uh, thigh, the, the leg that I would yep. throw out in the turn. Um, and, uh, the more I do this in gravel riding, the more I find that when my tires do start to break free because of a soft surface, uh, and skid, the better able I am to control that skid and get the bike upright again, rather than simply washing out and falling. That's another one of those things where if I can get a two wheel drift on a gravel bike, I feel like a God. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just truly one of my very favorite things in cycling, doing a drift on a gravel bike, major badass. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Just love it. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately for road riders, I'll say that this time of year is a little bit less sexy because a lot of the exercises that I'll work on are not nearly as fun. Uh, but there are things that are worth working on. This is a really good time of year to work on spin and cadence. Uh, and I did this just one day last week. I'll pick a relatively low gear, something that I can spin at 15 or 16 miles per hour and go out and do a flat ride uh, on the bike path. And, uh, you know, won't ever shift to a higher gear. Um, I'll, I'll get up to, yeah, 16, maybe 17 Mm -hmm. miles per hour and just try to stay smooth and not worry about, well, I could go faster. I'm not winded, but no, it, it's one of those exercise exercises that's, um, well, it's not as satisfying as launching off a tree, but the efficiency (laughs) that you gain, you know, it pays off everywhere you ride. You know what? It and does. No matter what bike you're on, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. that's a good piece of advice in general yeah. to be thinking about those things. Mm. Right, when you're riding in the summer, you're letting your hair down, you're just riding, and you're not being conscious of what you're doing. That's, yeah, that's yeah. a really I good mean, point. Yeah, when you're when your goal is like, how fast can I be? You're not taking that time to slow down and work on technique stuff. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So you're looking at the leaves, you're smelling the fresh air, and now you're working on your technique. Yeah. yeah. And you're ripping down some crazy hills. Oh, thank heaven. 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, Finally. Yeah, I just live for that. I'm curious. I mean, do you take a point in the year where you're working on any, you know, discrete exercises in terms of technique? Oh, that's that's a good question. I think for me and where I am with cycling at this point in my life, I'm more about shifting gears into different types of riding just different bikes like mm. spending more time <laughs> with my mountain bike this time of year i definitely see my mountain bike more often and in my poll for this week i'm going to talk about fat bikes and that's a big part for me is keeping it interesting and and getting some more time on other bikes just just for the interesting factor mm-hmm. um but mostly because i'm not training for anything specifically I had been training for mm-hmm. DK 200 and then when that didn't happen, now it's more that, well, what events are we doing? And it, because of COVID and, and everything else, we've shifted much more to gravel mm-hmm. because that's been the place to go. It's easier to do it socially distant instead of in groups like with road. You don't do that as much with the COVID with people needing to stay apart. But yet being in the same similar kind of place. So it's easier to have a gravel cycling event right now. So that's more my cycling tends to mimic what events we have going on. Neat. Well, I'm, I'm curious then to hear, you know, in terms of how you're going to do events, what does that look like? How do you make sure that everybody's social, socially distanced? Um, how do you create that sense of cohesion of everybody doing something together? Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question. Of course, we've asked ourselves in a lot of different ways how to do group things without being with each other. Every cyclist rolls on their own and we mm-hmm. so we give a time to each person when each person is going to start and we have three or four different routes, so everyone is on a prescribed route. And because of just people's paces are different, you end up seeing people throughout the day. Mm-hmm. And with rules being very clear, no one should be drafting anyone else. If you're going to pass someone, you announce that you're there so everyone can get their buffs up over their faces. So no one's breathing on each other. But just knowing that you're doing the same thing other people are doing gives mm-hmm. you that sense of community in a lot of ways. And of course, there's social media that helps where people are posting mm-hmm. pictures and talking about it with their friends. And then at, at food stops, it's very easy to stand 10 feet apart and mm-hmm. have a great conversation with 30 other people. So that's that's been really nice food stops. And then at the end of the day, it's all outside food, barbecue, that sort of thing. And people are standing far enough away. It's it's great. It's really heartwarming to see how people have been able to connect in that way. That sounds awesome. I am so incredibly starved for that. It, I mean, it's it, everyone's it feels so like starved I, right now. Yeah. I mean, it feels like I've had a meal that didn't fill me up. I'm doing all these things that I love about cycling, but there's this one thing that is not getting satisfied at all. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of, you know, the food stops and then the barbecue at the end, how do you how do you do that? Uh, Because, I mean, I think about like uh, only recently, you know, did I start going to events where instead of just the big bowl of peanut M&Ms sitting there. They were like doing little bitty Dixie cups of, you know, like 
eight peanut mm. M&Ms per, per cup, things like that. So the people yep. aren't just diving their grimy hands into a bowl of something. How are you changing things right. that way? Uh, that's individually wrapped food. So uh-huh. bike food is fortunate. It's already we use scratch labs, bars and um, oh, untapped maple individual packets of uh-huh. maple syrup oh gosh, yes. the, the waffles i mean all of the, that food is so good it's natural it's easy to get down and it's already pre-packaged and then the rule is if you've touched it you're eating it or at least you're taking it so that uh-huh. no one else is touching that same thing so it, it minimizes the touching we have someone working who's got the food service gloves on and is making sure everything's sterilized and clean and that everyone's keeping their space Um, So everyone's been exceptionally good about the rules. And I think anyone who's attracted to a social distance ride that has that as part of its its nature, this is what it is. Mm -hmm. It makes that a lot easier, a lot easier than a lot of these events that we're trying to be run this year. D2R2, you mentioned earlier, like that's a good example. If you registered for D2R2 with your 15 closest friends. It's hard to then turn that into a social distance ride mm-hmm. because of how you had registered for it. With our rides, they didn't exist. We caused them to exist when the you know, the the rules relaxed just enough to make it okay to run something. Mm-hmm. But then, in, yeah, you know when you're registering that you're not going to be riding this with more than two other friends, and you need to be socially distancing with the people you ride with. So we have people who are members of households, of course, riding together and people who are social distancing together. But that's that's it. And going in with that thought in mind, it's not like, oh, now we have to break the social group apart in order to to be safe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. People don't feel like they're losing uh, an aspect of the social uh, experience that they were planning to have going in. Right. Exactly. I think that's a big part of what's really helping with something that's new that hasn't been done before or has expectations surrounding it. And right. the, the, the old social that we all love and we all wish we could have right now. So, yeah, it shifts it, but it still has certainly filled people in ways that I mean, our, our re-registration rates have been phenomenal. Very, very high. And with people using the terms like, oh, yeah, I'm addicted to that. (laughs) It also helps, too, because a lot of people who didn't ever feel comfortable riding in a group before can now do this, be part of a group Mm -hmm. in a way they never felt comfortable before. Oh, wow. So that's included. Pack of cyclists. Exactly. Exactly. They don't have to worry about their pace. And that's that's been a real interesting eye opening. That's right. There are have been a lot of people who have been nervous about getting involved with a group situation and may not have expressed that and, and it may very well be at this at a level that would be work with a group ride. But mm-hmm. they haven't had a chance or have been nervous about it because I think a lot of people are intimidated by cycling groups and not knowing etiquette, getting into a group ride. There's just so much there right. that is intimidating right, right. for people. Well, I, you know, yeah, I'd never considered the possibility that somebody who, you know, when everyone was healthy, was uncomfortable riding six feet off of the rear wheel of another rider. Well, now that you're not allowed to ride six feet off the wheel of another rider, that 
presents a whole new situation in terms of adding a safety buffer for people who aren't right. experienced in riding within a group. Oh, that's lovely. Exactly. I, it is. It is. <gasps> it's been it's been really, really neat. Well, we had one rider just as an example who showed up to this last mm-hmm. ride. We had a hundred kilometer distance option. I think this rider took something like six to eight hours to complete the distance mm-hmm. and was glowing at the end. She was so happy because she got to do this ride that she wouldn't be able to participate in in any other way. She had a great time and she had the same great time that someone who rode the same route in 16 miles per hour and went much quicker. Mm-hmm. Everyone had that same shared great experience and great feelings at the end. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, well, yeah. I hope that as you run these events, you start seeing more people who haven't been doing, uh, you know, organized events previously out of that fear. So Oh. Definitely. It's opening it up. It's and that's that's what cycling is. It's it, it really is for everyone who enjoys bikes. I think it it's very much what the cycling independence trying to do is reach anybody on two wheels. And I don't think the cycling world is that intimidating. But then again, it is. If you feel intimidated by it, that by definition means it's intimidating. Yeah. Right. That's that, your truth. right. That's your perspective yep. going into it. And I think there are lots of wonderful ways in which I can see a whole new poll for a future show on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes. So this is this is a really great way to to figure out some new ways of bringing people into the sport. Very cool. Very cool. Well, why don't we move on yeah. to your poll? What do you have this week? As I let you grab a drink. Well, Oops, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, this is this is one of my favorite times of year, not just because of the time of year that it is now, but also because we're entering winter time. Mm -hmm. So something you mentioned last week that got my attention was that you mentioned that Californians don't or at least in your area don't fat bike because there isn't a need for fat bikes. And so that got me thinking, though, I'm not saying that like you need or don't need fat bikes where you are. And I'll be very interested in getting your take on this after Uh I I discuss fat bikes a bit. Uh, Have you ridden a fat bike, Patrick? I have. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, A media event. You know, I was at a a press launch for someone's bike line and, you know, you take everything out that they make. And so, yes, I've ridden some Mm -hmm. back fat bikes, but it was on grass. You know, I don't (laughs) think that's quite what people had in mind. So I am not going to, I, I am not going to assert in any way, shape or form that I have had a proper fat bike experience. OK, so okay. just let me concede the point there. All right, good. That's one more thing to add to the list of things you need to do when you come out here next. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. <Challenge> accepted. <laughs> Excellent. So I, I think there there is a lot that fat bikes bring to the cycling table. Okay, I'd like to discuss fat bikes, why so many New Englanders ride fat bikes and why they have a very real place in most of the country. So I sell high end fat bikes and have only seen their demand grow year over year. And while some people have said, oh, fat bikes came and went, they I think from my perspective, they've come and they're growing and they're becoming more popular all the time. And I think this winter, especially with gyms being closed down and people being afraid to go inside. They're going to be even more popular this year with everyone trying to stay outside in however way they can. Mm -hmm. 
So hopefully these thoughts will offer some insight to those who haven't considered the fat bikes and to think about your cycling a little differently. Fat bikes are fun bikes. They don't represent speed or performance with their huge tires. A typical wheel and tire size for a fat bike is a 26 inch rim and 4.6 inch wide tires. Mm -hmm. There are a few other wheel and tire sizes out there, but this is the most common. So that's generally what I'm talking about when I when I say fat. So relatively speaking, a fat bike will weigh much more than your other bikes, even the light ones, mostly because due to those huge wheels and tires, they're just heavy. And they're also not remotely aerodynamic with your position <laughs> and just a wide tire. You're, you're facing a lot into the wind when you're on this bike. So if you haven't ridden a fat bike, I recommend getting on one. Take one for a demo ride and see what it feels like. Because trying to describe what fun feels like is not easy. <laughs> All of your bikes are fun in a variety of ways. Like many of your bikes are for you the type two fun. And the definition of type two fun is that it's miserable while it's happening, but it's fun in retrospect. Yes. And a lot of times the adrenaline, the endorphins, other things play a role in your, your feelings post experience of possibly suffering on your bike. Totes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm talking about. A fat bike is likely to bring a smile to your face the fastest when you're out riding it, like faster than any other bike that you own. It rolls over everything. It never says no to you. And there's just a feeling of how it feels addictive. But once you've done it, you just want to get back there and do it again. And you're not quite sure why. So you get a taste of it and you're going to want more of it. Mm -hmm. Fat bikes offer the opportunity to go slower. And why is this good? That's a phrase I have never heard in my life. So you you got to say it again. <laughs> you, Patrick, get the opportunity to go slower. And yeah, that's see, a good opportunity thing. and slower are not words I ordinarily pair. So, yeah, you, you're going to break that one down. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so as the temperatures get colder, slower riding riding helps you stay warmer. Everything oh, uh-huh. is going okay. to be less cold without the wind chill factor. <laughs> You're more likely to be on trails. You're going to be protected in trees or just off the road, which the road is the coldest place to be. Yep. You have to work harder to go slower. You have to put a lot more energy into that bike to push it along because it's heavier because of your position on that bike and everything about it. You do have to work harder and uh-huh. your pace is going to be, I don't know, what 10 miles per hour sounds really fast to me mm. while we're talking about riding a fat bike. So gravel riders have found like the trails offer shelter Mm -hmm. and that's the same sort of place you're going to go with, with your fat bike. And notice I haven't mentioned snow yet at all. I'm just talking about (laughs) fat biking on a nice, a beautiful fall day, a chilly day. Uh, So yeah, you jump on your fat bike. You're going to be warm really fast. Hmm. So fat bikes also offer the opportunity. Notice I'm putting a positive spin on this as well to throw out your data, forget Strava for a moment and just rest and rejuvenate. And I think this goes back to your question of of skills. I think something that's just really important to people 
is taking down some of the expectations of every time you get on a back bike, you need to be faster. Right. You need to show that you're more powerful than that you were. Um, you're more powerful now than you were your last ride. Mm-hmm. All of those sorts of things. Just sometimes you need to get away from the data and enjoy a ride, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. after a long, hard season. You've been putting in the big miles. You've been chasing your goals, stepping back and just hitting reset. So you shift your focus. It keep the cycling fresh. And that was also some of just getting on a different bike, getting mm-hmm. in a different position, mm-hmm. sitting on a different saddle. Another something that's beneficial is if you don't, you're not riding so fast, you're not going to go as far. And that's not mm-hmm. a bad thing because now you can stay closer to home. This is a quick, oh, it's dark in the morning. It's cold, but you only need to owe yourself a 45 minute ride and you haven't gotten too far from home. If you get a flat, goodness, worst case, you can walk home. You just haven't had to commit so deeply to that ride. You should go out, you get the blood circulating and you feel great and you get home. If you're going to do that on your road bike after 45 minutes, you haven't felt like you got much of a ride in. And you definitely mm-hmm. got have not gotten your workout in for the day. By the mo- for the most part, but you've done that on a fat bike and you just feel completely, completely filled as as a cyclist for that day. So fat bikes are simple machines. Well, they can be used with a suspension fork with all of the suspension that's built into the tires and the extra air volume. Mm-hmm. A, a rigid carbon fork is not only perfectly adequate for all your riding on the fat bike, it's actually the right option for winter snow riding it's winter and the salt and conditions or at least what we see in new england it's very bad for suspension forks so uh and then also if you're riding in the snow you don't want the suspension turned on you you need to have it locked out so you don't even need to deal with it on the fat bike you can just put on a carbon rigid fork that's easy and and you're good to go and that'll help so save some simple. money in the overall cost of the bike, right? Correct. Yes. Right. That's Not less expensive thing. than, than mm-hmm. a full suspension fork. And it's also lighter. So while you have this very heavy bike, mm-hmm. you can save a little weight by going with a carbon fork. Nice. And you'll feel the performance difference. Yeah. You could get a little better traction, some good stuff with that, with the rigidity of the fork. And also a fat bike has a simple drivetrain. You, know, you don't have a front derailleur, no matter how much you might want a front derailleur, Patrick. <laughs> um, you, <laughs> you, you don't have to worry about that. Um, have hydraulic brakes enclosed in the system. Again, when you're talking about winter riding, and there's, you know, we could talk about winter riding all day long as to how bad it is for the stuff, the corrosion of salts. And mm-hmm. so simple parts is a good thing. It's just less to, to get dirty, you know, and, and it's, less for you to have to clean which you can even have a fat bike that has a a gates belt drive so you don't even need a chain we've Mm -hmm. we've put that together it's an interesting setup but that's not for everyone you want to go single speed fat bike there you go that would be really cool i i i am sure i know people for that (laughs) (laughs) yeah yes it's interesting definitely not for not for every cyclist by any means a chain is Typically the simplest thing any, anyway. Um, so it's worth mentioning that you're also, because you're in an upright position on a fat bike, it's the best way to sit for winter cycling because you're wearing a lot more clothing and that's binding. 
So being in a road performance oh. position doesn't mm-hmm. work that well with all of those clothes trying to stay warm. So you're sitting more upright. And if it's a very, very cold day, you might even want to wear ski goggles. And if you've ever Ooh. tried to wear ski goggles in a road position or say on your gravel bike, it's really hard to see. So you have to end up craning your neck in order to oh. see through the goggles. Uh-huh. You find out that because sitting of the upright, at the top, you can't look out. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Never had I to learned think that one through. Okay. I learned that lesson the hard way. Um, so like little things like that, really beneficial uh, it, to to uh, the position of a fat bike. Now, something also to consider is older riders. A lot of people are growing older. Unfortunately, we all are. But as people get older, their stability is less and they become they become more concerned about falling. Uh-huh. And, you know, just your ability to balance in general goes down. So. Bigger fat tires are terrific. That offers a lot of stability, a lot of confidence. And you're going to just you don't have to crash as often for, you know, not that people necessarily crash when they're riding, but Mm -hmm. the chances are even less. And something I've noticed is that the wider stance of a fat bike gives me the feeling of having more control and balance as well, just because your feet are further Mm -hmm. apart from each other. And so I think that's something really valid for older riders who are feeling nervous about skinnier tires. Uh-huh. So that's another opportunity for fat bikes. Then the same logic goes to allowing less experienced riders it's easier access to mountain biking. Mm-hmm. You much easier to feel more confident. You can roll over anything, and you're just not going to have to have your skill set as advanced mm-hmm. as like mm-hmm. yours might be after a lifetime of riding. Or someone just wants to be on the trails and just wants to kick around. So I hear you talking a little bit about increased low speed stability, which I think is really great. And yes, I, I mean, I think about if I was trying to get my mom who's past the age of getting back on a bike, but, you know, say it was 15 years ago and I was trying to get my mom on a bike, I, you know, thinking about increased low speed stability uh, and a greater sense of balance and poise on a bike. A fat bike does sound really neat. What about in those conditions where you don't need to be, uh, I'm wondering about like, well, I've ridden some, uh, some 27 plus bikes, 27.5, uh, by three inch tires. Is there an ability if you want to be going a little bit faster and you want to save your, uh, 4.6 or five inch tire for snow that you can do something else with that bike? Yeah, that's a great question because yes, there are a lot of fat bikes, but you have to make sure the spec says that it's appropriate for 27.5 with three mm-hmm. inch tires because that 26 inch by 4.6 inch tire and 27.5 by three is not that different of a total wheel size. Mm-hmm. So that yeah. diameter is similar so yes there are bikes that are designed to take both and that's a great application in new england we have a lot of those bikes that have two wheel sets so people just swap the wheels over for winter they've got their studded fat tires for the winter and then then they have that 27.5 plus wheel set for the summer for all their mountain biking 
And that works out really well. So you've got the one bike that works for both of those. And it makes it easier to justify as well. This is a four season bike. It's not just the two months in the wintertime when you have perfect snow type of bike. Mm, yeah. Well, and that brings up another question that echoes from our last episode, which is we've had all these people decide, you know, OK, I'm going to go buy a bike. As a matter of fact, a friend of mine ordered a bike in July and she got it Saturday. OK, uh, yep. <laughs> yeah. taking a while uh, right now. Yep. Yeah, she's uh, I, I, saints could lay, learn something about patience from her. Uh, holy cow. So I'm curious. And what you know of supply chain in terms of fat bikes, you know, now that temperatures are dropping and people are going to start thinking about, oh, I want to keep riding on through the winter. Are people going to be able to order fat bikes? That's a really good question. I've been keeping an eye out there because of all the bikes that we sell. We they're built in Massachusetts, so Mm -hmm. I know I'm going to be able to get the frames that I need. Um, I think that the supply chain is going to continue to be challenging through <laughs> through the winter for everything. So, yes, being a, being early on finding your fat bike and making a purchase, I think that is going to be really important. I, I, I'm certain that they are, exist now. They are available now. People aren't quite in that mindset of fat bikes mm-hmm. but they're going to go really quick and typically what happens is one day where the weather turns and all of a sudden everyone runs out all at the same time so mm-hmm. do it before the weather changes you definitely <laughs> want to get ahead of that this year especially yeah and every uh, year they sell out that's another something that's worth uh-huh. mentioning fat bikes definitely sell out every year so they'll just do it earlier this year oh gosh wow and i'm guessing yep. that the things that have already been challenging in the supply chain, you know, chains, uh, tires and other sure. things. Well, it's a different tire. So, but yeah, I think about like right. chains, cassettes, things like that, that are going to be used on multiple bikes. Those are going to be the pinch points for fat bikes as well. Right. Definitely. Yeah. That's, that's going to remain true across the board. Mm. Mm. I, when it, when the snow's flying and you're out there, I mean, I was looking at the boots that you recommended last week, and I'm I'm such a footwear nerd on that as well that I was like, oh, those look really cool. How do you run clipless all through the winter or do you at some point switch to a platform pedal and something a little bit more, shall we say, muck luckish? Good question. I've. Definitely tried to go platform pedal and I find it really hard because it, because you just aren't, you don't have that ability to have the up pull on your mm-hmm. pedal. So, and I feel like that's really important, especially on ice. Mm-hmm. You really just need to be able to pull your pedals up. And once in a while, I've had snow get caught in the clipless pedal system, but mm-hmm. it's not that frequent for as much as it helps. I've, so I've tried to give it a go. I thought, oh, this would be great to have a platform pedal. It's just another part of easing your mind and not doing the same thing you did all the rest of the year. But I have to come back to clipless pedals are just the best. They keep you connected to the bike. It makes the whole everything safer and more efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's my how I approach it. I do know other cyclists who have who use platform pedals 
and they like it. I, I'm just not quite sure how. And I, I know some of them how. are listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we'll hear from them. I would. Hope we'll have that. a debate after that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I can totally see how if you're in relatively slippery or somewhat slippery conditions, having a smoother pedal stroke, which is going to be easier with clipless pedals. I can see how that would work. Now, I recall from my days of super muddy cyclocross racing in New England that we would spray Pam on the pedals to get the mud to to shed as quickly and easily as possible. Is there anything that you do for ice that would offer a similar sort of adaptation? Uh, that's the, that Pam trick is a good one uh, for ice. It, it's basically taking water like water in a water bottle and just being able uh-huh. to squirt down your puddle okay. or squirt down your shoe uh-huh. that helps. I mean, if it's a very, very cold day, you just may end up needing a stick and maybe not even being able to clip in. And that's okay. At that point, you're now using a platform pedal. When you have a <laughs> huge boot, you're pushing down mm-hmm. and there is a pedal there. So you're right. essentially using a platform pedal. So, gotcha. Not quite as easy, but it's about the same concept. Wow. Yeah. I <laughs> thinking back on some of the funny experiences that I had, uh, in in frozen conditions, uh, oh. it's been a while. With I think I'd have quite a learning curve again. <laughs> well, that's interesting thinking about it in terms of mud. Like snow is so oh. clean. Snow cleans your equipment. Mud. Wow. Yeah, you've got a job on your hands after that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> last year, I did a mountain bike race out at Lake Sonoma, where. There was this one mud bog and a bunch of horses had been through there like, I don't know, the day before our race or something. I'm not even sure what it was. And it was so muddy that my one by system shed its chain. The chain came off because of the mud. That is impressive. Multiple times. That's hard to do. Not just the one. Yeah. Like a half dozen times. You know, and then you're, of course, you're trying to get the chain lined up with the wide, narrow chain uh, teeth of the chain ring. Uh, and that can take, you know, when you mm-hmm. can't actually see the teeth. <laughs> right. You have no idea where anything goes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why isn't it fitting? Oh, right. I got to move it right. a little bit more. Gosh. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it's funny because I think of ice and snow as being more difficult than that. But if it's not as difficult as that, um, that's encouraging. <laughs> yeah. It would be great at some point to interview someone who's fat biking in Alaska and doing some very or minnesota those are really good places for serious winter cycling i feel like boston at this point isn't that serious and Mm -hmm. it's just not as cold here as it is there it's the the winter here has definitely become much more temperate since you've lived here so we're we're not talking the same winter conditions Mm -hmm. well uh you know we've got people all over the country i that we might hear from somebody and this is clearly your invitation if you are fat biking yes. through a long winter uh yeah reach out we'd love to hear your perspective on it uh yeah maybe we even record a little interview yeah i think that'd be great uh, i would i would love to do that get some more of that perspective in and a yeah. lot of the equipment that we use is being product tested in alaska i'm uh, sorry minnesota and a lot of it's built in Alaska as well. So they're coming from these places of the equipment that we're using. So there's a lot of testing, a lot of product testing and development going on in these places. 
that makes a lot of sense. Mother meets yep. necessity and such. Right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Otherwise you go crazy. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I still think about if I was in a place that was doing a lot of getting a lot of snow in the winter, how I would still kind of, my default would be Nordic skiing, not fat biking. Um, you know, gosh, I, that's an activity I really miss, but I could, you know, I am fundamentally kind of an N plus one guy. So yeah, if I was in New England, I suspect I would have a fat bike. Uh, oh, very good. <laughs> yeah. We'll definitely connect you when you get out here and definitely encourage everybody to just find a friend with a fat bike. At this point, they're out there enough that you'll be able to get on one and see what you think about it. It might open up a very fun winter that you start looking forward to instead of dreading. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anything to make the winter better. That's for sure. That's uh, right. Well, Which segues into we... possibly your pick of the week. Oh yeah. Okay. I can, I can lead. Sure. Uh, something you mentioned a little earlier uh, in your poll. My pick of the week is the lowly buff. <laughs> I do a fair amount totally. of mileage on bike paths. Uh, getting from my side of Santa Rosa to the west side of town, where all the really good roads start, uh, means about a half hour spin on a bike path. Uh, there's actually another bike path that's a little more like 45 minutes getting to Sebastopol. Uh, so just as getting to my favorite trails in Anadel also means traveling a bit of bike path on which there are usually other people walking or riding. Um, I've tried riding with a mask, but they don't stay put worth a flip. Uh, and while I've certainly read that a buff isn't the best way to protect either myself or others, uh, my belief is that I need to at least begin with the basics when I'm in public, you know, cover my nose and my mouth. Uh, that at least shows that I'm trying to follow basic guidelines uh, and pulling up a buff is way easier and quicker than trying to adjust a mask that is out of position. The other thing I do when I'm riding is when I encounter another person is I'll back off my pace a little bit. I close my mouth and breathe through my nose more and more. I'm trying to breathe through my nose on the bike anyway, but that, you know, especially then, uh, and based what on what I read in James Nestor's book, breath, I think that, that may actually make the bigger difference in cutting down transmission than even the buff does just breathing through your nose. The point for me mm -hmm. is to do something that clearly shows I'm trying to be considerate of those around me as well as doing something that may actually make a difference. The breathing through my nose part. It's funny how mm -hmm. many of those things I've been given over the years. <laughs> I just stuck them all in a drawer. You know, it's like, okay, well, it's useful, so I'll hang on to it. It doesn't take up much space, but the, I was yeah. just collecting them in a drawer. And now it's like, oh my gosh, I've got like a dozen of them. Uh, I never saw the need previously, you know, but now I've got so many that I've amassed that I can wear a clean one on every ride. <laughs> and for those who oh, like to coordinate. Nice? <laughs> yeah, it smells good. Well, they all seem to smell the same, whether they're clean or dirty, I've noticed. <laughs> um, but, uh, and you know, it's, I guess it's a decent enough smell. Um, but, you know, I should also mention, though, 
For those who like to coordinate, there are companies out there who are offering to custom sublimate them so you can put on your shop logo or your team logo or some drawing from your kid. You know, it's it's out there. Uh, pricing is all over the place. Uh, some of the best pricing I've noticed on uh, custom sublimated buffs is not coming from cycling apparel companies, I should say. Sorry, which, guys. Uh, which buff do you use when you're riding or which which is your favorite brand since you have many? I, I don't even know what brands they're from. I mean, because they're all sublimated with somebody's logo. I have no idea who made them. Uh, and I, I think, I think every one of them is essentially the same construction. They're seamless. There's, they're reasonably stretchy. Uh, they're all about the same length. I don't know, nine inches or so. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I, yeah, I couldn't tell you where they came from. Uh, some of them are clearly cooler than others. Like I've got a, I've got one from dirty Kansas. So oh, well, yeah. there you go. That is yeah. definitely the cool factor. Yeah. But I also I've have been one wearing from the them as well. Which, yeah. Uh, from uh, a company called Pandana seems to make mm-hmm. many of those that I've been wearing that are custom. So mm. I would be interested in seeing if they've possibly made one or more of yours. Um, but I've enjoyed them as well. Everything you're saying, absolutely agree with. They're so nice to wear. Yeah. Well, uh, it's, it's nice that I didn't throw them all away (laughs) because now I can go out on the bike path and not feel like a jerk. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And if it's chillier out, your neck covering your neck is really comfortable. That's something if your neck's getting cold, all the rest of you just gets cold. So this I, is the perfect you know, time of year for it. I think I'm going to be keeping a closer eye on that this season. I, yeah, I've just, I've never given it much thought, you know, I've got, I've got some jackets that have a relatively high neck, but I haven't given it any thought beyond that. So hmm, yeah. this might be a different winter for me. Do you think that helps? Do you think that helps you with the air quality concerns that you've got? No. <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> because, help with. Yeah, it's not like an N95 mask that's pulling out tiny, tiny little particles. Uh, You know, the bigger stuff, when I can actually see flakes of ash in the air, uh, sure, it's it's handy for that. But when I can actually see flakes of ash in the air, I'm not riding a bicycle. Uh, But I have I've certainly like uh, worn a a buff over a mask with an an N95 filter in it on the really really bad days it's like i want it all on me uh fortunately there haven't been a lot of days like that i tend to get out of dodge so to speak Mm -hmm. yeah what's your peak this week well this week my pick goes to taking care of your hands because we took good care of your feet last week Uh with the winter boots in the fall when your hands are getting chilly obviously most people go to gloves Mm -hmm. There's something called pogies and these are getting more popular, but you may not have seen or heard of them. So check out pogies by Mm -hmm. a few companies that make them are bar mitts, wolf tooth, um, 45 North. And they are essentially they're basically like windscreens that you put your hands in. So these windscreens go over your bars. They make Uh them for flat bars for fat bikes and mountain bikes. 
And they also make them for drop bars. And Barmits in particular makes nice drop bar pogies. So you just simply you can wear a pretty light glove. They say a merino liner glove. Put your hands in the pogies and your hands will heat up really quickly. And even if it's a very, very cold day, your hands can stay warm. Even if you have sensitive hands, these Mm -hmm. things work great and they're open. So cold air can get in. But just because they're breaking the wind, they're protecting your hands. They're a bit miraculous. Wow. And so I guess that helps a lot with dexterity for both breaking and shifting. Correct. Right. You can wear a thinner glove. So, yeah, you can break while you need to shift as you need to, especially, say, if you have a DI2 system or levers that are close to each other. Yeah. Easier to not miss shift. Yeah. yeah, I was I was thinking particularly about DI2 because I put on winter gloves and it's like, who knows whether the, the derailleur is going to go up or down. Right. <laughs> right. I've seen that a lot. So, yeah, so the those are really good. The only concern with a pogey is that you can't use the drops necessarily. They have different styles. So you have to consider how you ride a bike as to whether or not you can use the drops because you may not be able to use the drops and have access to your brake lever. Um, And if you're holding your, I'm talking about drop bar bikes uh, Uh now, the drop bar. Um, If you hold on top of your handlebars in order to brake, you now have to put your hand into the pogey to reach the brakes. Mm -hmm. And that could be one step that if you're trying to do a real quick brake maneuver, the pogey could get in your way. Uh, on your so, way to the brake lever. So drop bar pogies are generally designed so that you're riding with your hands on the hoods. Correct. Ah, exactly. Okay. So if that's your comfortable, normal position, you're good to go. And then mm-hmm. there are some that are bigger that allow you to be in the drops and give you easier access to your, your levers. But that's where it's good to have a pogie that's a little bigger. It's quicker and easier to get into because the last mm-hmm. thing you want to do is have to break in a corner. You point to indicate that you're turning and then you have to get your hand back into the pogey. So you just, oh, need, gosh. you yeah. just need to, you get, you get the hang of it pretty quickly. The first couple times mm-hmm. it's not, it's not happy yet, but, but it's entirely worth it for your warm, toasty, happy hands. Well, toasty, happy hands are, yeah, that's a, that's a real thing. Um, yes that's very important and yeah Yeah. you know it makes sense to me that you'd be on your hoods because as you were noting earlier you know winter time you're you're wearing more layers your clothing's bulkier uh if you've got a lot of bulk of material yeah being down in drops maybe not the most comfortable place you could be there you go exactly yeah yeah wow so check out pogies as another way of keeping your hands toasty I, you know, worse things have happened. Um, and I mean, I, I will say there have been days where, you know, I've wanted to go out and I've just hated the big thick gloves. Uh, and so I've maybe waited till a little later in the day when I can wear a thinner glove. Um, Mm I, yeah, uh, it doesn't get super, super cold here, but there, there are invariably, you know, some days where it's like 30 degrees or, or 35 degrees and raining here. And uh, mm. that that might make a difference for me, even. 
Yeah, that that is weather where that could help a lot, especially if it's rainy. That's cold. Uh, yeah, yeah. We don't. I mean, the last time I saw snow was you know up in the mountains somewhere where I was not. I I don't ever have to deal with snow, you know, in my actual riding. Um, so that's too bad. I'm sorry to hear that. Ha! I'm not complaining. <laughs> <laughs> you're missing out you it. don't know it but that's okay <laughs> uh, i you know uh i i accept all the criticism of my readers and listeners that i don't know what winter is um i have a, a memory it might be distant but i do remember what a real winter is like and there are reasons i live in northern california uh the wine aside and the, the beer <laughs> aside uh <laughs> definitely that's- the steep grades aside there you go that's nice that's the thing you want to love your climate and wherever people live hopefully they love their climate and aren't dreading a particular time of year where they just feel like they need to go inside and hibernate for four months at a time it's it's nice that you enjoy being outside wherever you are oh yeah very much uh and i'm you know i'm honestly really excited that you're doing this winter stuff so that we're we're offering content for those people who are shall we say ahead of the curve climate wise in terms of the coming season yeah right. so let's do them a solid yeah, there you go yeah. it can be very positive it's all in how you look at it and prepare for it yeah yeah cool well hey that's a wrap on another episode of the pace line Keep those questions coming. And yeah, if you're somebody who lives in a really cold place and you've got deep knowledge of uh, riding in the snow and whatnot, especially if you're a fellow shop owner, mm, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, If you've got an idea, drop by the Cycling Independent and put a suggestion in our comments. We hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes us easier for other listeners to find. Until next week, I'm Patrick Brady with Patria Vandermark. Thanks for listening to The Pace Line.